friends, it's Kayla Moran and welcome back to the Let's Get Cancer podcast. How is everybody doing? Happy Thursday, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever day or time you're listening. I hope you're having a good start to your day or you're having a good day so far. This week is another long episode and I do apologize that they are so long. I know not everyone loves a long podcast. I happen to love them because I don't mind pausing and starting over at different times of the day depending on what I'm doing, walking, driving, in between classes, etc. Um, but yeah, I know they're not everyone's favorite, so I do apologize for that, but I'm just having such a great time having such incredible conversations that I cannot wait to share with you guys, and this one is no different. I love having guests on that are true friends of mine, and just really jumping into the nitty-gritty. I know I say that a lot too, but just something about really hitting deep and touching a bunch of different topics and heavier topics sometimes but you know that's what the beauty of a podcast is you know that's what makes them so special so i want to jump right in but really fast suck and sweet of the week suck of the week is that it's officially my last semester of law school and i'm now in the thick of it and i'm just navigating you know, being back in classes and I'm taking quite a bit of credits this semester because my 2L year, I decided to not take as many credits, took the minimum amount to be a full-time student and get my scholarship, but also prioritizing my health. And, you know, that meant that my last semester, I have to take quite a bit of credits compared to other people who are taking like nine or 12 and just like having an easy chill semester i am not i'm taking 15 so it's been quite an adjustment it's going to be an adjustment for a little bit but you know it'll all be worth it and we're almost at the finish line and i actually am enjoying almost all of my classes this semester i'm not gonna say all of them because some of them are bar classes and some of them are classes i don't really care to take but that i need to take and some i'm really enjoying and i'm gonna do a whole episode on law school next week so i'll tell you guys more about that then and my suite of the week is to be honest i don't really know i don't have one and that's really sad but you know actually i'm gonna say that just really taking the time for myself and enjoying my moments and being present and in the moment you know that that's a big thing for me this year and i've had some really great self-care and just to myself moments to enjoy and stop and smell the roses and be proud of myself and be proud of how far I've come and hug myself and say I love you and just really celebrate myself so I'm gonna say that's my sweet of the week but yeah said I would keep it short so here it is this week's guest is Kaylin aka the redhead academic and she is one of my clients at Rella Social so I'm very grateful to get to work with her and just have her as a friend because she is such an incredible friend and she's an amazing resource and she has helped me so much personally and academically and I know her audience loves her and she helps you guys all so much. So without further ado, meet Kaylin. Hey Kaylin, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm so excited to have you on. For those of you listening, Kaylin is the Redhead Academic on social media, on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, what else are you on? TikTok. <laughs> TikTok, sorry. Um, I should know this. Um, but yeah, she is a P 
PhD student at Yale. She has had a really cool, interesting journey to get there. So we're going to talk all about that. She has her own consulting company, Accepted Consulting. And she's also, like I said, a content creator on YouTube and other social media. So talk a little bit about, you know, your journey to academia. You have had an interesting path to get there from, you know, high school and growing up in the Bay Area to being an equestrian professionally to then realizing, oh, maybe school is for me. So tell us about that. Yeah. So growing up, I always rode horses. I started riding when I was four years old and from kindergarten, I was always asked like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I always wanted to be a professional equestrian. I wanted to go to the Olympics. (laughs) And so I trained and I rode all through my childhood and adolescence. And then when I was in high school, I really began focusing on trying to gain riding experience and, and grooming. And I used to braid horses manes at the horse show late at night. And so I would do anything that I could in order to kind of get my in into the industry. And in turn, I did not focus on school. I, there are multiple reasons for that in fourth in, sorry, in the ninth grade, I was 14 years old. I had a really bad riding accident where I had like punctured my lung. I had, I had broken a couple ribs. Like I was, uh, pretty badly injured. And so when I returned to school, it was several weeks later and I was made fun of because I had a rolling backpack and kids in high school. So mean in high school. So awful. And so I had a lot of like I PTSD and I was battling with anxiety and depression because of that particular incident. And that really made my high school experience really difficult because kids were mean. And also I just didn't really feel comfortable there. And so I really focused on riding and getting back into the sport rather than on my grades, much to the dismay of my parents. And I ultimately nearly didn't graduate high school and, but ended up managing to figure out how to maneuver the credits and pass my classes enough to get the diploma. But afterward, I went to my dad and I said to him, I'm not going to go to college. It's not for me. I want to go ride horses. And he basically said, okay, well, you're making an adult decision. And so you're going to be 18. I was 17 at the time. So if you want to make an adult decision, then I'm going to treat you as an adult, which means that you need to move out and you need to make your way in this world and you need to be making your own money. And so I moved out at 17 and I rode horses and I was training, grooming, doing everything I could in order to pay the bills. And then I ended up turning professional at 18. I rode for about two or three years before I ultimately decided that I wanted to go back to school. And there's a variety of things that prompted that decision One of them being that I had gone to a series of horse shows. I was competing and doing really well. I was working with a a team that I really enjoyed. I loved the clients, loved the horses, but I was competing during the day. And at night I would come home and I would just feel unfulfilled. It felt, it just didn't quite feel right. I had made this huge decision since I was a kid that I wanted to pursue this particular career. And then I finally did it. And I never considered what came next. And so that was when I kind of made the decision, okay, I need to find something else. I need to find another outlet. So I'm just going to go take some classes at the community college and just see if maybe I can get like an AA. I really like history. I'll just take some history classes and see how that goes. So 
went to community college and just absolutely fell in love with the study of history. And I also had another riding accident where I had to have shoulder surgery. And I think that's what really propelled me to, to transfer was this realization that physically I might not be able to withstand the, the rigor of the sport for the rest of my life and that I needed a backup plan. But two, I would spend all my time recovering by like listening to podcasts, reading books. And I came across Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings and American Controversy by Annette Gordon-Reed. And that was really the book that led me to study history and African-American studies and focus on the enslaved experience and uh, in early America and during the revolution. And that was what led me to want to go transfer because that was the only way I was going to be able to actually study that because in community college, there were only very general survey courses. So I transferred to UCLA and at the time I thought I was going to go to law school. I was very set on wanting to go to law school. And I knew that given my background and that I had come into UCLA with a rather low GPA given the median, that I was going to need to hit the ground running. I needed to get the best grades I possibly could. And that I was also going to need research experience. And so I developed relationships with my professors right off the bat and really focused on gaining research experience. So then I wrote a thesis. I began working on the thesis the spring of my junior year. And it was that summer when I came to the realization of like, if I have to stop doing this, it will be doing me a disservice that this will, it will crush me if I have to leave academia and I will not be able to do this work anymore. And I had had another career. So it wasn't that I was afraid of leaving academia. It was seriously that I just didn't want to stop doing research. And so I ultimately looked at my opportunities. I knew I wasn't quite ready to apply to a PhD yet. And so I decided to go do a master's first. And I had studied abroad in the UK and decided that I really wanted to go back. So I applied to four different programs over in England. And two of the programs were in history and two of the programs were in human rights law. And I ultimately led it up to fate. I said, okay, whatever program I get into, my gut will tell me where it is that I am meant to go. And that will lead me down whatever path I'm meant to go down. And I ultimately got into three of the four programs. And one of them happened to be Oxford's master's in U.S. history. So that's how I wound up at Oxford. I went there for my nine-month master's degree, was ultimately there for six months before COVID hit, and then came back to California. Around the time that COVID hit was when I found out I had gotten into Yale. And that was for my PhD in the joint program in history and African-American studies. I went back to California for a little while and then moved on over to New Haven. And around the time that I was preparing to move to New Haven, I had started a business called Accepted Consulting, which was primarily focused on providing access to higher ed for people applying to graduate school and for community college transfer students. And originally I had only started it like as a side hustle. It was really just because I kept getting questions about it and I wanted to see if there was more demand than there was. And so I started that business. And so that's kind of how I got, got going with having my PhD as well as, as my business on, on the side, I guess. And I also started YouTube somewhere along there, but I'm sure we'll get to that. Yeah. So now here I am. Yeah. I think it's so cool that your journey isn't linear 
because I think it's so important for people to realize that you can have a goal and that one, that goal may change, but even if the goal doesn't change the path to get there, there's not one path that is like the right path. Just because your friend or someone else did it one way doesn't mean that you have to do it that way. And it goes to show like you're a perfect example of that. And, you know, everything happens for a reason and you wouldn't be where you're at today and be able to provide the advice and help that you do either through your own content or through your clients. Had you not gone through things the way you had gone through and Um, I studied abroad in England as well in undergrad, and I did a U.S. history comparing U.S. history or U.S. law to U.K. law, and I fell in love. And I knew I was going to law school at that point, and I never considered going to law in the U.K. In law school in the U.K., obviously, the systems are different, Um, Mm -hmm. but I loved it. So I totally feel you on like you wanted to study there, and I think that's so cool that you did because I got to visit Oxford. on my study abroad trip, I studied at Coventry, but we got to go to Oxford for the day and just being there that like the, seeing the like little the colleges and like the the kids were graduating and they were wearing like the, the, the outfits they wear at graduation. And I just thought like, wow, this is so cool. I would love to get to experience this and study here. So I think that's so special too, that you did. Yeah. YouTube. When did you start YouTube? Cause you are able to grow accepted so much because of you sharing genuinely your experiences on YouTube. So when did you start sharing your life on YouTube and social media? So I had always wanted to start a YouTube channel and ultimately I bought a camera when I was at UCLA and there's like a couple UCLA vlogs. I think there's like two of them that are still on my channel. Um, So technically I started at UCLA, but I didn't really start in earnest until the summer before I went to Oxford, because I had looked for content about studying abroad in the UK and specifically for a master's. And I couldn't find anything. There was only one graduate student vlogger that I was able to find. His name was uh, Simon, but he was a PhD student and he did, I think, mathematics or physics. And I couldn't find anybody that did humanities and that was in graduate school or that was going to Oxford and Cambridge, there was a lot of undergrads, there was a lot of college vloggers, but there was nobody telling anyone about the graduate experience. And so I knew I was heading to Oxford. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to learn how to get in front of a camera and be consistent and create content that I personally would have been looking for. And by then, hopefully I will be more comfortable. So that way I can actually vlog my experience at Oxford. I think that's so special because that's how I started my blog too. When I, mm-hmm. I started applying, well, actually I was still in college and I was like taking the LSAT and I wanted to know what law school would really, like, what am I getting myself into? What, yeah. it, what will my days actually look like? Will I have a life? Will I have a social life? Which I want to ask you about that too, yeah. like later, but like, what is it really going to be like? And it wasn't there. And the girls who were doing it, cause there was a lot of girls that were law school bloggers only talked about law school. But then once they graduated, like it stopped and they also didn't show like the personal, they didn't show their personalities beyond like them as law students. And I was like, if I only focus on law school content, I'm losing a whole part of myself. And I don't talk about law school content at all on Instagram. Like at this point, it was in my personal Instagram. Cause like, if I don't share what I'm doing every day for the next three years, like I'm missing out on a big part of my life. I love that you, that was the same like journey for you. Cause I think it's, if you like 
create the content you want to see. And that's how it's like your audience will see that. And like, they want to follow you because they genuinely like see that you love what you're doing and you're, you're sharing, I think. So like little tangent there, but I love, I wanted to say that because I think that's so cool. That's how it started for you. Talk a little bit about the transfer process um, from community college to UCLA. I know the UC schools are notoriously really difficult to get into. So what was that really like? And now the new law. Yeah. So the transfer process is very different if you're a California state resident versus if you're trying to apply for out of state. So I applied to both public, private, in-state and out-of-state universities. So I I also work with clients who are wanting to apply out of state and think about the private institution um, application process through the Common App. But UCs have their own system, in which case as a transfer student, what I really like- Are they state schools? The UCs? Yeah, they're- Yes, yeah. So they're they're governed by the, so the University of California Board of Trustees. And so they have their own system, in which case I can't remember exactly how many UCs there there are, but I ended up applying to four. I applied to Berkeley, UCLA, UCSB, and UC Davis. And it's one application and you just like click the box on which ones that you want your application sent to. And one thing that was really appealing as a California state resident was that there was two different ways that you can get into a UC. So there's the, the tap or the tag system. So they have an agreement between the community colleges, the accredited community colleges in California and the University of California that states that certain schools have contracts that require that they let in students that hit certain marks. So, so long as you are passing and so long as you've hit the the unit mark and you've hit the requirements, you are automatically offered admission to the one, one of those schools that has a contract. My school only had a contract with University of California, Santa Cruz and UCSB. So I technically tapped to UCSB. So I had guaranteed admission to one college for sure, but you had to apply to the others as well. And the application also did not require the SAT or the ACT, which was a godsend because I'm terrible at standardized tests. And so I ended up basically having to just write four essays. So it's your essays and your transcripts. And there's no letters of recommendation. There's no SAT. And so the one thing that really sets you apart is your essays. And so that's actually really how I got started with the idea for ever creating a consulting firm was that there is so much strategy and how you formulate the essays and how it is you go about answering the questions, both in college admissions, but also in graduate admissions. And so I wrote my essays and submitted them. It was one, one form, as I said, I just clicked the box for the schools I wanted it sent to. And that was that. It was a very simple process by comparison to the, the private universities or the out-of-state public universities that I applied to. I applied everywhere. I applied to William and Mary. I applied to University of Connecticut, uh, University of Vermont, like several universities over on the East Coast, because I was determined I was not staying in California, which is just ironic because I got into UCLA, which I never thought was going to happen, and ultimately fell in love with their program. And here we are. <laughs> yeah, and it, it changed a lot for you because that's where you really found what you wanted to study. So I think that's so special. Yeah, I actually have a friend who went to UCLA. I think she's a little bit older than you. So I don't know if you were ever there at the same time, but she's from Miami. So I now I'm curious, like what her application process was like, Um, because I didn't know. 
I mean, I know that like out of state and in state are different, obviously financially, but I didn't know that the application process was the college admissions process is very different than the transfer process. Um, so in the college admissions process for the UC is you still, well, actually they just banned the SAT from their admissions practices. So go to the university of California board of trustees. <laughs> I, and then it's primarily based on the essays, your, uh, transcripts from high school, extracurriculars, obviously letters of rec, that kind of stuff, but they have now eliminated the SAT as a marker, but the college admissions process is a bit different than the transfer process. Interesting. Um, so yeah, that new, well, now that that's one of the laws that changed, but there was a new law you just posted about this week that now it makes it easier to transfer from community college to one of the UCs. So what, what was that? Yeah. So governor Newsom and various other legislators in the state Senate, um, or within the, the board of trustees, I suppose, um, have passed a change to the agreement with community colleges to make it easier for certain credits to pass. So originally with the way it was set up, you had to take very specific classes in order for it to transfer to very specific schools. So so you had to know you wanted to transfer, which not everyone Yeah, does. so you have to know that you want to transfer. And also some of the classes that you want to take for this, for say, if you wanted to apply to CSU Fullerton, they're not going to count for University of California, like UCLA. So they're just trying to create a system whereby the UCs are recognizing more applicable credits essentially from the community colleges that way that makes the transfer process a little bit more seamless that makes sense and that's good for them that they're they're doing that because that's something that's really important to you is the access to education and access to higher education i think that's so special um but yeah so you you go to oxford because you fell in love with the uk you wanted to you wanted to continue studying over there when did yale come up like when was you when did you know like I want to well you always knew you want to get a PhD now that you you were in at UCLA but you weren't ready for a PhD so you go to Oxford when did you start thinking like okay now I'm ready to start applying for a PhD what schools did you look at how did you how did Yale come about yeah so I was so I was very systematic and I I promote strategy in all things graduate admissions. And so when I was in college, it was my senior year, I was already thinking about, okay, so if I got into this school, how could I navigate to get into this school? Or like, how could I potentially use Oxford to like propel me in this direction? And I had always had my sights set on Yale because they have both a history department, a African-American studies department, as well as a law school. And that was one of the primary sets of criteria for the schools that I was looking at as a PhD candidate or as a PhD student. And so I ended up looking at 10 different schools and most of the schools that got disqualified off of my list were because of they didn't have a law school or they didn't have an AFAM department or because I just didn't really feel like it was a good fit after I went through the informational interview process. But Yale, I had always known was going to be one of my target schools. One, because in community college, I used to use their online resources. So there's a center here called the Gilder Lehrman Center for the study of African-American history and culture, something along those lines. And they have all of their events posted on YouTube. And for me, that was a huge access point as a community college student that wanted to learn more about African-American history and specifically the history of slavery. 
And so I had always had my, my eye on Yale. And then when I went through the informational interview process, which pretty much every PhD student can or should do, um, which is where you reach out to potential advisors ahead of applying to make sure that you're a good fit for one another. I had an informational interview with my now advisor and I had such a great time on the call with him. I told him my research idea and he gave me a lot of really incredible feedback. And that was one indicator for me that this was a program that I really wanted to be at. And so there was a couple other factors like Yale is fully funded by comparison to other programs. The cost of living in New Haven was more attractive than programs like Columbia that were going to be in New York. And so there was, there was a variety of criteria for what I wanted, but those were some of the, the mandatory bits and pieces. That makes sense. And I like the, the informational interview part. And I think strategy for grad school applications and choosing a school is so important. I have a whole blog post that I've shared about that. And I'm sure you have YouTube videos on that as well, like how to find a school not just what the school can offer you, but what you can offer the school, but you do have to take it like into account location and cost of living. And are you going to be able to do stuff that you enjoy like hobbies and have fun while you're there? Because yeah, your studying is going to take up a large chunk of your time, but like you want to also have fun and enjoy where you're at. Cause it is also your early twenties or thirties and you want to be able to meet people and have a good time. So I think that's so important to the factors that you mentioned and the informational interview. I, uh, we have admitted students stay at my law school and that's how I knew that truly was a good fit for me aside from financially and aside from also just knowing that they had the programs I wanted, but just getting to see the school and be there and immerse myself in a week, a weekend there I was like, okay, like I can do this here. Um, ended up being that Knoxville is not for me, but that's besides the point. Um, <laughs> Uh, that's a whole story for another day. Um, but yeah, I think that's really cool. So you start sharing this on YouTube. You're, you're, you're sharing all of this, these great, amazing resources. And you're getting a lot of questions about it. When did accepted consultant, like it had been on your mind. You knew you wanted to do it since college, but now you're sharing Oxford and like grad school life and that PhD admissions process and how to write a research paper, which you're helping me also figure that out for myself too. Um, But when did accepted consulting come about? So it really came about because of just a general need that I was seeing. So I started posting my Oxford videos and in my Oxford videos, if anyone goes and rewatches them, I'm going through the process when I first got there of applying to PhD programs. And I talked very openly about it. I said like, oh, I have a call with a potential advisor or something along those lines, or, oh, I'm working on my statement of purpose to submit to these schools. And I kept getting emails from people who wanted to apply to Oxford or they were applying to transfer and they had seen my videos and they just had questions. And so I started taking calls and funny enough, and this will matter in a moment, uh, my first call was with a girl named Katie, and she was a community college student who wanted to transfer, and she die hard wanted to go to Berkeley. And so I worked with her one-on-one. We had a call. I talked to her about the different strategies that she should be implementing in her essays. She went, she drafted them. We went through multiple rounds of edits in order to get them to where I thought that they were sufficient to get her into her target school. And along with Katie, there was a there was many others that I would get emails from and that I would have calls with. And ultimately it started with like one call here and there. And then it was two calls a week. And then it was, I was getting 
five emails a day. And then it was, oh, I'm getting like 50 requests a week. (laughs) And so it just grew really quickly as people were finding my content. And so I realized, okay, I'm putting in a lot of time into this because every document review takes me at, at minimum an hour and the calls typically take like 30, 40 minutes. And so ultimately I decided I was like, okay, like I'm going to, I'm going to make this a paid service because it is taking up a lot of time. And originally I started really low and ultimately like slowly built out the business. And it's, and it's funny talking to you because it was actually Natalie who was the one who told me to give it a business name because originally it was just on my own personal website, which was kaylinapple.com. And I had had a conversation with Natalie where she was like, you need to make this like a formal business. So you need to give it a name. And so I got off the call with her and I'm sitting alone in my apartment and I'm racking my brain about different names. And that's how I came up with accepted consulting. She helped me come up with my podcast name too, which is like, that's so funny that it was her that like Natalie Barbu, by the way, for those of you who don't know, someone that Kaylin works with us at Rella. Um, and also Natalie has become like one of our really good friends mutually as well. And that's how I know yeah. Kaylin. Um, but yeah, that's so funny that um, she was the one to, to do that. So not to get too much into the weeds of it, but what was like creating that business model? Like actually now you have the idea, you name it, but how do you make it its own business? Like talk a little bit about the business aspect of that. So ultimately, like I had the pricing and I always said, and it states on the website that I wanted to keep our prices 75% or more below industry standard and industry standard for graduate admissions consultations for one PhD application is between four and $6,000. I knew it was expensive because I looked it up for law school once, but holy shit. And I can't afford that. Who can afford that? No. And I just realized no. that there was this huge issue. If that's what was, if that was the, information, if that's where people were trying to get their information or they were trying to do it on their own and, but they didn't have good mentors or they didn't have, like, if they're a first generation student or they're a first generation graduate student, like I am, this information is held behind a paywall. And yeah, that to me just wasn't okay. And so I started making videos and started making informational videos. And then I said, okay, if you want to work with me one-on-one, then I'm going to direct you over to the website and the website, I bought the domain for accept consulting, built it out on Squarespace. And ultimately that month was, which is just so funny to me looking back, but I had that call with Natalie and about a week later, when was this? This was was in August of 2020. Okay. And so at that point I was getting like, probably like four paying clients, like three or four paying clients, like every week, two weeks. And people were coming to like the master classes and the office hours. My office hours were always full, but when I finally gave it a name and started treating it like a business was when it literally exploded. Like we grew, yeah. I, it grew in terms of revenue and number of clients 400% in a matter wow. of a month. <laughs> wow. And when that happened was when I quickly realized that was so September of 2020 was when things like really started skyrocketing. And that's when I had this, okay, now what kind of moment? Cause I knew that doing this alone was, I was not sustainable 
because with the number of clients and the number of labor that was required in order to get the documents out and in order to help them, I knew I was going to need some more infrastructure. And I remember having a conversation with my dad about it. And I was like, it's either I have to scale up or I have to scale down. Like I'm going to have to either turn people away and be really selective about who I'm working with, which I don't want to do because the whole point is access (laughs) or I need to, I need to hire a team. And so now we're, we're a year later and I have six people on my team, (laughs) which is crazy. (laughs) And we have different departments. So there's the uh, transfer and college admissions. There's also the graduate admissions, which is our biggest, the biggest part of the business. We've also got academic and career planning for people that are just kind of figuring out what direction they want to go in and are not sure whether or not they should be applying this year. And then we also have what's known as accepted society, which is a community space for aspiring academics and young professionals who just want people that they can nerd out with and that they can work with and accountability workshops and think about kind of academic and career planning. So yeah, it's, it's grown, it's grown exponentially and it. That's insane. You're like an accidental entrepreneur. Yeah. What's it like running? (laughs) What's it like running a team and like what's next? Um, growth wise, like how many more people are you going to hire? You're going to add more departments. Mm -hmm. Cause I, the law school admissions is its own beast med school admissions. And those aren't your specialties obviously, but you could hire people to do that. So is that something you're interested in? Have you thought about it? What's next for accepted consulting? Yeah. So I do law school admissions because I myself have looked into the process so much and I, I've done so much research on the process and I've, I've worked with clients and I've helped them get into school so far, but the one, the couple different areas that we lack support is, was in the medical space, but I recently just hired somebody who covers medical sciences. So she does psych medical school, public and global health programs, that kind of thing. That's awesome. Um, the one thing that I think that we're going to need to scale up a lot is our humanities and social science sector. Cause I'm currently the one that runs that division of the graduate admission side. And I feel very protective of it because I have a very specific strategy. It's been very successful. I've worked with clients that I've helped get into Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, like all the top schools. And so I feel very protective of, of that. And so I'm kind of actively looking for somebody that can, that can help cover that area, but I'm not in a rush because it needs to be the right fit. In terms of managing a team, really what I've been focused on is making sure that I have people on the team that are mission-driven, that they, all the people that came to work for Accepted came to me saying, I want to help increase access to higher ed. And here's how I want to do it. I want to do it with you. And so making sure that we all are aligned in that way, but that everybody on the team is active and charismatic and that wants to also engage on social media. Cause another thing is that running this business as someone who started on social media and most of the clientele has come from social media, it's been difficult to transition away from me. And we finally are hitting our stride and clients are now actively coming and working with other people on the team, which was our biggest pain point for, for months. And in terms of growth, like I said, I want to hire somebody else in the humanities and 
I ultimately would love to scale it to the point where we can obviously help more people and increase our reach. But also I would eventually like to get to have an, like have a, a division that's well, not necessarily a physical space, but I would also like to run a division in the UK because a lot of our clients are from the EU or from the UK or they're from, they're abroad and one, the time zone creates access issues. But two, I would also like to really focus on our UK admissions processes because right now, anybody that wants to apply to the UK schools, they come and work with me versus I would ideally like to have people on the team that are living in the UK and that know the UK systems. That way they can help people from around the world knowing that system. So that's kind of like my general scaling idea. It's, I think it's going to be, well, I say, I I always say it's going to be slow and gradual and then it doesn't. So we'll see. (laughs) I I thought I was going to hire two, two, like maybe two, maybe three people this year. I didn't think I was going to hire six or seven. Yeah. And that's cool. But I mean, that, that speaks volumes too, of like how effective what you're doing is and that it's, a, it's truly is a need. Like Natalie started Rella because it was a pain point for her. You started this because it was a pain point for you. Like my blog and my podcast were a pain point for me. So like, I think if you, and also it goes to like, too, like if you want to be an entrepreneur and you have an idea, you can have the best idea in the world, but if it's not something you're passionate about and it's not truly a white space that you, you, you need, or you see a need for, and you're passionate about it. Like you can have the best intention in the world and it might not be what you want it to be. And that's why businesses fail so fast in the first year. So many, because I think people get in over their head and like, it's not to say that you're not in over your head because I'm sure you have been at times you do so much, which I want to talk about next, but I think that's really important to know as well. Yeah. So how do you, before we talk specifically into content creation, how do you balance grad school, PhD, your PhD program and accepted consulting? And like just your, what's a typical day and week in your life, like balancing your yeah. schedule. And I know you've shared, you recently did a couple of videos on this as well, um, showing how you time managing your calendaring and like programs that you use for that. So how do you balance it all? Yeah. So I have a lot on my plate. So as you said, I'm, I'm a PhD student. So that takes up the majority of my time. The main commitment that I have is producing an eventual dissertation. And so at the moment I'm in my last semester of coursework. So my time right now looks very different than it's going to look two months from now. However, I also have accepted, I also have YouTube and kind of influencer content creation. And I also have an RA position. So I'm also a research assistant for a project on the Royal African Company slave trade documents. So a lot to manage, but ultimately I try to divide each day into one or two different primary categories. So for example, on Monday, I only focus on school and that's essentially it. Like I, I maybe edit a YouTube video. So I'd say I balance that between school and the redhead academic. On Tuesdays, I am focused on class and accepted. So I I work all morning until I go off to class. And then by the time I come home at 4 p.m., that's when I put on my like accepted hat and I focus on reviewing client documents and getting things prepared for the team. On Wednesday, I focus only on accepted until about 6 p.m. And then I switch gears and then I'm back to being a student. (laughs) And 
then on Thursdays, I'm just a student. And then I also do some stuff for the Redhead Academic in the evening. And then Friday is kind of my catch-all. So Friday, I leave relatively, and I say relatively with like air quotes, open. And I say that's like my quote-unquote free day, in which case I may or may not have meetings. I may or may not have stuff for school. I may or may not be coding for my RA position. I may just stay in bed for a couple hours. Like I can kind of figure out what it is that I need to be doing that day. And it's kind of a catch-all. So Friday is that day for me as well. So I feel that. So for example, like I, if I have a campaign that I'm working on with Kayla and Natalie, I'll try to make sure that I like go shoot content on that day or like I'm filming a YouTube video or whatever it may be. And then I may answer some emails for accepted, but I also may be doing reading for my law class. Like I can be doing anything on a Friday. Saturdays are for clients in the morning. So I meet with clients from 9 a.m. to about 2 or 3 p.m. Or I run master classes or office hours or whatever it may be. And then in the evening, I switch gears again and I am focused either on my RA position or I'm focused on school. And then Sundays are pretty much solely for school. That's when I get all of my reading done. I write my papers and those types of things. I do, however, I think it's important to note because I get questions about this a lot. I do decide each week what needs to be a priority. School is, school is always number one priority, but when there comes like a paper, for example, I will not take clients for an entire week or two, which has a huge impact on accepted. Like it, it has a huge impact on the revenue at accepted. However, where the reason I'm here is to get my PhD. And so what I have to do in order to succeed as a student, because it First and foremost, I want my scholarship to be at the best quality it can be. Then sometimes I need to let the other areas of my life and my income take a little bit of a hit because this is the priority. And so it's trying to figure out like what it is that I want to be focusing on that week. But one thing that's important to note, as we talked about before, when you're doing something that you truly love and care about and feel so deeply invested in it's hard work and you will put in 24 seven in order to make it work. (laughs) And I have a lot on my plate to be certain, but this is where I actually feel the most engaged and the most excited about my work. Like I feel, I do not feel tired in the same way that I felt six months ago when I had less client work and less stuff for YouTube and whatnot. Like right now, is my sweet spot. And I'm really engaged in school. We're finally back on campus and my clients are excellent and we're getting them out the door and trying to make sure that they get into their schools. And I'm really excited about my content with YouTube and like with the brand deals and things that we're, we're trying to cultivate. And so all of these things just get me super excited and lit up. And so I don't feel like it shows and it shows. And I think I was talking about that this week. Uh, you and I talked about it too. Like after I shared my stories, like I'm the most overwhelmed I've ever been, but like the most happy overwhelmed, like I wouldn't be doing everything that I'm doing if I didn't love it. Yeah. And like, of course there's days where like bad client or bad school day or whatever it is, but like, ultimately I'm so happy to be doing everything I'm doing and I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't love it. Like I'm overwhelmed, but like, yeah, it's my sweet spot. I, I love what I'm doing and, you know, it's worth it to me. So I'm glad you brought up that note because I think that's so important. Yeah. 
Cause I, I love everything that I get to do. And I, I don't want to drop anything. I don't want to limit anything because I just like everything that I'm working on. <laughs> yeah. So we got one question, um, how to balance schoolwork, but still fitting in free time without feeling guilty. So with everything that you do, how do you still make time for fun with your friends, fun with, you know, going to walk for your, on a walk with your dog or going to see family or you were just in DC? Like, how do you make time for fun social life that isn't related to school or business? I think of it this way, in order for me to show up as a student, for me to show up as a researcher, for me to show up as a business owner, I have to be at my best. And at my best is when I feel like happy, my body feels good and everything. And so in order for that to be my most productive, I also need to schedule in and get rest or have time with friends or just completely check out in order to do my best work. And so I, I don't feel guilty about going and hanging out with my friends because to me, that makes me feel so much better. And also, and this is another thing that it's, it's hard to do, but as you get older and as you kind of listen to yourself and what your gut is telling you and what your body is telling you, you start recognizing patterns of whether or not you're doing things for the right reasons and making sure that you are listening to your, to your body and the things that you need. So for example, yesterday in between calls, I was exhausted. And so I went and took a 20 minute nap in between. And I went out on Friday night with my friends because I just wanted to go ice skating. And I just didn't think about accepted. I didn't think about school or anything. And to me, that made me, that made it so that way I was able to do better work this weekend. It meant like that made me feel so much better being around people. And it's so important. And so thinking about rather than thinking about balance, think about like listening to your body and listening to what it is that you need. And if you're thinking, you know what, like I have just been head down, not around people. I've been staring at my computer for three days straight. I just need to go out. Like I just need to see people. And so for example, last night I worked really hard all day. And in the evening I was like, you know what would make me feel really good right now? It's just going over to my friend's house and just watching Harry Potter. And I don't feel guilty about doing that because. And you shouldn't. Yeah. I hate that we have, we like, I hate like the way the question was phrased. Like it's a genuine question. It's an important question to ask because why do we feel guilty for doing stuff that makes us feel good? And that makes us happy. Like, yeah, yeah work is important. And like, you're going to be really busy, but like, if you don't take time for yourself, like if you don't fill back your cup. Like it's just, you're not going to be able to put in the effort that needs to be put into the things that are important to you. So I think I love that you recognize that. And it's so important too. like, yeah, listening to your body. I did a blog post all about that recently. Like managing my anxiety to me is listening to what my body is telling me it's my gut, my intuition saying like, something's not right here. We need to do something about it. And yeah, this weekend I've gone out quite a lot this weekend, just because my whole friend group knew that like, it's, we're a quarter of the way done with our last year of law school like we need to make the most of it like we won't see each other as much next year like you know this is a lot like we're we're, we're trying to enjoy as much as we can and yeah it's hard and like we're thinking about all the million things that we have to do when we go home and like the next day but we get to be in the moment and like 
being able to enjoy that moment without worrying so much about what everything around us allows us to the next day, get up and do what we need to do. So I think I love that. I think the other part of like this idea of guilt too. And I I've noticed this, I noticed this a lot last spring for myself. I felt guilty taking time off because I wasn't actually using the time that I was working effectively. I was getting, letting myself get distracted or I wasn't really putting in the type of effort or quality that I wanted to in my writing. And so that way, when I did take time off, I felt like, well, you should just, you should be continue be, to be working because you didn't put in the quality that you were looking for. And so making sure that the times that you are working, that you are really effectively paying attention and focusing in on what it is that you're doing, because for example, like I did my reading this morning and I turned off my phone and put it in my room and I just zeroed in on my, on my legal reading. And even though I'm not necessarily completely done with it, I read it effectively. And so I'm like, okay, now I can take a break because I did, I worked really hard to make sure that I got through these sets of articles and I can return to it when I feel rested versus if I had been here kind of like scrolling on my phone, kind of reading a page and like going back and forth, I wouldn't feel that I could, I could take that, that rest and feel like it was quote unquote earned. And not to say that you need to earn rest also, but yeah, no, you don't, you definitely listen to your body. And like, I think that's so special, like, important to what you just said, because I struggle with that, like effectively like I'm really effective at everything else I do, but the hardest for me to be effective at is my, my readings for, for classes. So, cause I do, I'll read like two pages. I'm like, Oh, let me scroll for five minutes. And then it's like, ends up being more than five minutes. And then I don't want to get yeah. back to it. And it takes me three hours to read 20 yeah. pages. Um, so yeah, I love that. Um, yeah. The effectiveness point, like that's such a good point that you brought up. In terms of focus, people ask me all the time and everybody has their own method of focusing. Like there are many ways, many different brains, many different mechanisms that work for me, like body doubling. So going on zoom and studying with somebody else who's also effectively getting their work done does wonders for me, but also, I don't know. I, so I had, I said this thing to my friend Katie the other day who works for accepted and I just think it's funny. So I'll I'll just mention it, which is that whenever I'm studying and I really don't want to focus, I try to think of my life as like a montage reel from like legally blonde. And I'm like, okay, so if somebody were to do like a montage reel of my life, what would they see? And what I want people to see in that montage reel is like me working really hard, me running my business, me hanging out with friends and having a good time. I don't want to watch a clip of me like scrolling on my phone. That's such a, I love that. I think that's, I need to start doing that. I think that would be so helpful because yeah, I, <laughs> the people ask me what I do all day. They want me to share like day in my lives. And I'm like, I, I, it's not like, I'm not a good example of a law student, to be honest with you. Like I suck at reading for class because I get distracted very easily. So I think that's such a good way of thinking about it. Like, what do I want? Like, don't get so caught up in the perception, but like, Cause then you're living for someone else, but like, it is important to like, think about it that way. Like, you know, to be effective. I think I love that. I love that. It's also like legally blonde reference, but I love that. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. No, anytime I need to be motivated, I go watch that movie. But for example, think of it this way. If I think back on my years at UCLA, the things I remember were the late night setting with my friends laughing our heads off while like 
drinking too much coffee at two in the morning while studying for finals. Like those are the memories that that's like the montage that plays in my head. And when I think about certain, like I think about last spring and I had a really hard spring semester. And if I were to look back on those memories, like majority of those memories are, are not fond to look upon. Yeah. And so trying to make sure that you're also like living for those moments that your future self is really going to look back on and cherish. And so being present in those moments and trying to really enjoy what it is that you're experiencing, even if it's hard, because ultimately in the future, you will look back on those moments and you'll, you'll remember that as, as you putting in your absolute best effort that you were really engaging with your friends and that you were having the time of your life. And so I try to think of it that way. Like I, I think on certain memories when I was at Oxford or when I was at UCLA, or even when I was in community college and I was like, I was working so hard. I was the happiest I've ever been. I've had the best friendships I've ever had. Like, I love that. I want to live for those moments and I want to keep creating those moments. I love that. And when you do look back, you want to look back fondly and cherish those memories that you made. And, and see how far you've come in the growth and how all of those experiences add up to who you are today. I love that. So really fast before we talk about content creation, finances, like going along, like grad school is expensive. Obviously the application process done, but like, but like actually living there and like groceries and you are lucky to have side businesses. Not everyone mm-hmm. can or does. So how do you yeah. finance your PhD and like, pay for groceries and pay for the clothes that you wear and fun like going out for drinks or dinner with your friends. Like, how do you, like, I know some PhD programs do like stipends and your RA position like is paid and like TA in college and law school, like those are paid positions, but like, how do you pay to be a grad student? How do you live? So I, I did pay for my, my master's degree, but my PhD is funded by Yale. So most PhD programs are quote unquote fully funded and fully funded depends on the definition varies depending on the school at Yale, which is an institution with a lot more money to put into research. It means that they cover my tuition, they cover my health insurance, and then I get a monthly. Is that an additional application or is that comes with like your application to the school? It comes, it comes with the application. It comes with getting into the school. So sorry about that. (laughs) So in addition to getting my acceptance letter, I also was given my financial offer. And so that lays out exactly how much you're expected to make per year and all of those things. And I could go on a rant about like how much and, and why it needs to be more and yada, yada. But regardless, it is enough to live on in New Haven. However, if you want to have any savings or if you want to have any cushion, or if you want to live alone, then it's not enough to live on. So you're kind of, a lot of graduate students are in this like weird kind of gray area between adult and student. Yeah. Because literally my life. A PhD is a job. So is law school. Yeah. However, it is not treated as such by the university. And so you're kind of in this like weird stage where you might need to have roommates in order to really, uh, to live comfortably on the stipend. I personally wasn't willing to, to live with roommates because I'm now 26 years old. I have my dog. I have my, I've been living alone for several years now. And also I have a business and I have other things that work on their own timeline that I 
I need to be able to have my own space and be able to, to be able to do those things. And so I knew when I got into Yale that in order for me to, to do it, I was going to need to have a side income. I could technically pay all my bills and I would be comfortable on the stipend that I have, but I would have no money for savings or no money for incidentals. I couldn't, couldn't buy clothes, couldn't buy any, like couldn't go out. Like I'd have to live very, very tight, but luckily because of having multiple streams of revenue, it allows me to live a little bit more comfortably and to know that I have savings and know that I am making payments on my, my loans. So that way, hopefully by the time I do finish this PhD, I am in a position where I have a little bit more financial freedom. Yeah. That makes sense. I'm, I'm really, I was dying to ask you this, not just on the podcast in general. Like I was as a person, I'm curious how that worked because yeah, law school doesn't pay you to go to school, but you have to treat it like a job. And like, you are that in between like student and adult. And it's like a really weird, like dichotomy of like what your life looks like. And I was talking about it this morning. Like, I can't wait to like my golden birthdays next month, turn 24, graduate, pass the bar and start living my true adult life. I've been an adult since I was 18 or technically 21 when I graduated college, but like, I'm still in that weird, like I'm not truly an adult right now, but cause I'm still in school. So I'm glad you mentioned that. And I'm glad we chatted about so people know too, like if they want to go to like, not all grad school programs do that. Obviously law school is not one of those programs, but that PhD programs do have that option and opportunity. So I think glad we touched on that. And I want to talk a little bit about like your PhD trajectory and your research and like how, how, and when that will come to a quote unquote end. And like, cause obviously that's a continual thing. And you, we've, we've <laughs> mentioned, you've mentioned to me that you want to, you know, continue your research and be a speaker and share what you've learned and all of that. But so I want to come back to that afterwards, but talk a little bit about social media. So you started YouTube, YouTube led to accepted consulting, but when did you become quote unquote, an influencer? When did you start making money off of that? Not first accepted, but like as a influencer working with brands and now Natalie and I help manage your client, your, you as the, the influencer for brands who you know, at Rella. So how did he become an influencer basically? Yeah. So it's really funny that you ask because I went about it very strategically. (laughs) I, I mean, that's how I go about everything. So I get questions a lot about how it is that I got into it. And it's, I have a a notebook somewhere on my bookshelf that has a, a business plan on it. And in it talked about like what type of content I would be creating at different stages of my academic career and how I was going to monetize that and how I was going to work with different types of brands and how it is that I wanted to kind of develop into an influencer. And I didn't know how much time it was going to take, but I watched every single YouTube strategy video that was on YouTube at the time. I watched like Catherine Manning. I watched, I watched, uh, what's her name? Annie Dube. I watched Natalie. I watched every video that was possibly about starting a YouTube channel and I took notes and I was like, okay, so these are the types of videos that perform well. And this is what I need to do in order to grow. And then I worked with Natalie. I was, I, she, when she was doing her consulting uh, business for personal branding, and she also really helped me grow and come up with ideas. And when I started, when I hit a thousand subscribers was when I really started reaching out to brands and started quote unquote monetizing because I hit monetization on YouTube 
And I also started contacting brands looking to do brand deals because I had a very small following, but I had a very active and engaged following because I was, it's just so niche. So I don't have as wide a net in terms of the types of people that tend to want to look for graduate content. However, I knew that if I was at Oxford and if I hit certain like keywords that I was going to be able to, to work with certain types of brands that wanted that audience. And so I got my first brand deal in July, 2020, which was when I had, I think I was like 1.5 thousand subscribers. And that's when I started kind of working with brands and started uh, monetizing on YouTube and all of those things. So that was kind of the process. And then I, I slowly started working with brands from there and started negotiating those deals as a full-time PhD student. And as a business owner, I have all the respect in the freaking world for influencers and for managers that manage to contact brands and negotiate because it takes so much effort. I feel like people do not understand how much time and energy and thought goes into figuring out what brands you want to reach out to. How do you want to approach them? How do you negotiate? What brands should you be asking for? And trying to navigate that on my own. Thank goodness I had Natalie as a support when I first started. And then when she approached me about actually working with me as my manager, I jumped at the opportunity because I am glad to hand it off to somebody that knows how to do this a heck of a lot better than I do. (laughs) I think that's so funny that like I it's important to have a strategy, but I love that you had a strategy from the beginning, like how you were going to hit these markers. Cause I have a strategy now knowing that I can make it a business, but there's like two types of influencers right now. There's the ones who happened, like fell into it, like realized like they did it because they loved it. And like, Oh, I can make money off of this or girls going into it now, not just girls, but a lot of our young girls going into it right now. Like I see other people making money on it. I want to make money. And like, you can make money with a thousand followers. Absolutely. Probably not able to live full-time off of it, but you can make money with a small amount of followers because it's so important what you said. I don't, I don't have a large following, but I had an active engaged following. And I think that's super important, but like you need to have a strategy for how you're going to do it because there's so many scams out there, which can, I know, um, just like, and as an influencer, you re- you see a lot of DMs and scams and brands that aren't willing to pay you what you're actually worth or pay you for your value and your time. And, you know, you could lose a lot of money doing this if you're doing it the wrong way. So I think it's important to have a strategy and I definitely, I'm working out a strategy, um, on a, on a personal level, my personal brands, but I think it's funny how you had a strategy to even start it as a business. Once you realized like, okay, like I can do that. And I want to do that. Yeah. Well, I think I it was also kind of figured it out as I go. Yeah. It wasn't really about becoming an influencer. It was that I had done all this marketing research. Like I had done, I'd watched all these YouTubers for, for years. I'd watched college vloggers and I tried to figure out like, okay, what is drawing certain people to them? What types of videos, what do I find effective? What do I find not effective? And how can I incorporate that into the way that I'm developing my own videos that it goes along with what I'm already doing, but I'm just going to go about it 
strategically rather than just posting videos for the sake of posting videos. Like I'm going to make sure that I SEO it properly from the very beginning. I'm going to make sure that I think about the title and think about the thumbnail because those things play into the longevity of those videos. And so it was mostly just thinking about like, how can I do both? (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. I think that's important too. And um, you started out with a lot more of the academic concept, but you're slowly now as you're, again, you're in that weird place where you're both an adult and a student. And like, you do have to build a life for yourself outside of your research and your schoolwork and your business. So you've now started working with a little bit more lifestyle brands and some beauty brands. And so you're becoming more of a influencer (laughs) in that way. What people think of an influencer as, um, I feel like, although there's definitely different types. So I think that's like, it's cool to see I personally love hearing how other people went about it. Um, and I love watching like videos that like chronicle the, the whole trajectory of their career within that. So speaking of career trajectory, what do you think is next for each part of your business? We talked already about accepted, but with the redhead academic and your content creation, that's that business. And then also with your PhD business. And then just like what, what, what you as Kaylin as a person are looking forward to in the future. Yeah. So in terms of the redhead academic, I have, I have different ideas for how I, how I want to kind of work with my content right now. I've just been really focused on vlogs because I originally was really focused on like PhD vlogs. And now I'm kind of pivoting it and trying to think a little bit more about how it is that I can utilize being at Yale and being on campus because last year, obviously we're all online. And so a lot of my vlogs really involve a lot of B-roll on campus and all of those things. And the other thing that I'm thinking a little bit more strategically about like the, the types of content that I'm creating out of those vlogs, the types of conversations that I'm having, the types of things that I'm showcasing, for example, for example, like I, I used to never talk about the clothing that I was wearing, but I kept getting questions about it. And so now I try to make sure that I like put a clip in there of me, like talking about what it is that I'm wearing during the day. And then in terms of, of overall growth, there's just, there's natural stages to the PhD, which I think just align really well with where I want to see my content going. So right now it's really about coursework and starting the PhD and being in the early stages. But next semester, I start preparing for comprehensive exams, in which case I want to make more content about being at that stage and how to read effectively for comprehensive exams and what that process is going to look like. And then I'll be doing that for about a a year, year and a half, and then I'll be writing my prospectus. And that'll be a whole other set of content. And then I'm also going to be going off and doing research for my dissertation. And when I go off and do research for my dissertation, I'm going to go abroad to England. I'm going to go to the archives down in Virginia, down in DC. So I may or may not stay living in New Haven. And so we'll see how the content kind of evolves along with that. So I don't necessarily have a plan that's separate from the PhD because at the moment the PhD has these phases that I think are going to go really smoothly with the type of content that I want to create and it's going to keep it fresh. I also would like to eventually incorporate more content about being a business owner because that does take up a pretty big part of my my personality and my my time and so I want to be able to talk about it more and share some of those resources. In terms of my PhD, Ultimately, I want to get the PhD and perhaps do a research postdoc in another university. Ideally, I would like to go back to England. 
I, it was funny. I was talking to a friend yesterday. I went over to her house when we were watching Harry Potter and I asked her the question, there's that me- that scene with the mirror that shows you like your deepest desires. And I asked her like, okay, if you were to stand in front of the mirror, what would you see? And she asked me the same question. And I thought to myself, and I was like, huh, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. <laughs> because it's hard because you get so wrapped up in the PhD program. So I asked you like, what's next for you personally too? And like, you haven't gotten talking about that yet, but I think it is important to recognize that the PhD program is it's six years. You said you've told me it's six yeah. years. You're in what year? Second. I'm in the second. So yeah, you have a while to go still that takes you into mid this, the middle of this decade. And how old will you be when you finish the, this step, this PhD program before the postdoc and like that I'll stuff. My, I will be in my early thirties by the time yeah. that I complete the program. And I've also thought about either I want to, I want to end up living in London or I want to end up living in DC. I'm still not entirely certain. I'll come visit you wherever you go, especially if it's London. Okay. <laughs> I love London. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot that I want to do and I definitely see accepted being a part of my future for the, like forever. Yeah. I don't know. And that's a, that's a company that will live beyond you as well. Like that you can build that brand where you're the owner and the founder, but like it will have a life of its own because it's, you have, you've added all these other departments that, and I think it's something so, so, so important. So I love that. I'm excited for that. But yeah, what, We'll what see. do you see? What do you see for yourself? Like life-wise personal, you we were talking off air, like dating and like a little bit of that, yeah. like personal life, like you as a person, you as a young woman, you know, where do you see that going for you? Yeah. At the moment, I'm really dedicated to focusing on my friendships and being present in that and making sure that I'm building connections and relationships with people inside and outside of the Academy in terms of dating. I got out of a two and a half year long relationship back in April and what I learned from that relationship was that in order for me to want to be in a relationship, it needs to be that we both have very similar goals and that I have somebody who is very supportive of the things that I want to be pursuing. And until I find that, I don't feel the need to be dating. Yeah. I, agree <laughs> I with that. Yeah. And the thing is that at the end of the day, I've, I've been in various relationship situationships, et cetera, whereby my, my passions and the things that I want to pursue are somewhat seen as an inconvenience and my friendships do not treat my, my life and my extracurricular activities and my, my passions as an inconvenience. And so Mud, you're hitting the nail on the head. Cause I was talking about alignment yesterday in friendships and in yourself and the, how you also say, we have to look for a friendship that's aligned and they they know themselves and they're self-aware and they're self-actualized and they're aligning themselves. Like two aligned people can be in a friendship and the same thing, two aligned people can be in a relationship. But if one of them isn't, then you're going to start having resentment and resentment and all these things. And I love that you mentioned that, that like they, they will see that as an inconvenience because it's something I'm running into too. I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, I love my life. I love what I'm doing. I love my friends. I'm finally in a place where I feel like I get to commit my time and my energy into all of these projects that I feel, I truly feel committed to. And I, I feel like I am fully immersed in and I want a partner that does the same. And so until that person comes along, I am happy just doing 
doing this, being my, being on my own. And the thing is, I'm also not on my own. I have my friends, I have my family, I have my business. I have that community. Yeah. No, I, I like that. You're not, neither of us are alone. We're single, but like single is not a bad thing. It doesn't matter how old you are. Like we're both older than like the quote, like the traditional, like what we were supposed to, you know, marriage kids, like that's bullshit. And I think it's so special that we both recognize that like we're on our own timelines and like it'll happen when it's meant to happen, but we're fulfilled in what we're doing right now. And that's more important. And we need to find someone who's also fulfilled in their things. But like when that time comes great, but right now it's about yourself focusing on you. So I love that. I'm so happy we have this conversation and we went all over the place, but I hope whoever, like, if you made it this far, cause it's been a while, um, of us chatting, but that like, there's so much great like advice and like tips and just like, not even advice, but just like messaging that like resonate, like I think can resonate with a lot of different types of people. Even if a PhD in academia has never been for you or grad school has never been for you, or you never even went to college, but just like finding your passions and like yeah. seeing where they take you. Cause that's you, you started all of this because you fell in love yeah. with horseback riding and being an equestrian. And then it, you realize like, I loved it, but maybe there's more out there for me. And then you started pursuing like what made you like really happy, which was history and look how far it's taken you and all that it's given you. So I think the true story here is really finding your passions and being like finding a way to, to make it work for you and then becoming fulfilled, truly fulfilled and happy in what you're doing and that the rest will work out the way that it's meant to. So I'm glad that that was like kind of the thread throughout this whole thing. But if you had one piece of advice for someone whether it's consecration, YouTube, business, entrepreneurship, or like academia, like for someone who doesn't, who, who doesn't, isn't there yet, who's not fully aligned with themselves, who's not self-actualized, who's not, who's struggling just with whatever they're going through. Like what's us, you know, we're, we're in our mid twenties, we're working through these things. We're, we're growing into our own and what's like someone who's, who wants to be there. What, what advice do you give them? Yeah. So there's this quote that I live by, which is that confidence is built on keeping promises to yourself, which to me plays out in a variety of ways. Your ability to listen to your gut and know what you're passionate about all the, like, especially millennials and like zillennials, there's this constant push. Like you need to be doing your pat, like you need to be doing your passion project. You need to follow your passions. And some people don't quite know what that is, but in order to figure out what it is, you need to constantly listen to what it is. Your intuition is telling you, and you have to follow it when you continually deny yourself by not listening to what it is that your gut is telling you then that's when you get into a rut of not being able to figure out what it is you're truly passionate about because you don't know what the signs are. And so for me, I, I know what it is that my gut tells me about people, about projects, about things in school, whatever it may be. And so for me, I thought I definitely was going to go to law school, for example. And I ultimately listened to my gut, which told me, no, you, if you let go of this research, you will be doing yourself a disservice. And having followed that, having followed that line of, of thinking has landed me here. And I don't think I would be one, I want to be the same person, but two, I don't think I would have felt been as fulfilled had I followed that line of thinking that I had to keep going down that path because that's the one I paid for myself. 
you can always switch course. You can always pivot. There's always opportunity, but you have to listen to what it is that your gut is telling you in every hour, in every area of your life in order to then notice the signs when you're, when your gut is telling you, when your intuition is telling you that something is a big move that you need to be making. I love that so much. Who said that quote? Cause I want to make that the graphic for, I have no idea. I just, I heard it a couple years ago and I, I think about this all the time because people ask me like, how do you stay focused on your reading or how do you, how do you get all these things done? And I'm like, I just, I keep a promise to myself. Like I promised myself that I would be a good student. I promised myself that I would show up in class. And so I have to do this reading because if I don't, then I'm breaking that promise that I've made to myself. And I would never break a promise I make to a friend. I would never break a promise that I make to my parents. Yeah. And so why would I break a promise that I'm making to myself? I have to show up for myself every day. I love that so much. And I think that's such a great place to end because it's so true. You wouldn't lie to your friends about something that's really, really important. Little white lies not included. Like you wouldn't lie about something really important about something, or you wouldn't hide something from them if it was truly important and it would help them. So why would you do that to yourself? And I think that's so important. And a lot of what we're talking about alignment and self-actualization, that's what breeds confidence. So if you're keeping the promise to yourself and you're confident, you're living in the best version of yourself. And of course that will always above. And again, the path isn't linear literally another thread through this whole thing is like her path to where she is now is not linear and her career path realizing she can make money off of this and how she's making money through everything like that wasn't linear either it just kind of happened but like that is what makes you you and like by keeping those promises to yourselves you're you're confident in who you truly are and you're showing up as that person and I think that is so special I'm realizing law school like there is not one predetermined path, which is, or one set path to get to big law or this job or whatever clerkship, whatever it is that the movies make it seem out to be, or like even legally blonde does that. And like other like legal movies, which is part of why I started this podcast to share that everyone has a different reason. They do things in a different path. And it's okay that your path doesn't look like your friends. It doesn't make yours any less. It's just your path. And like everything happens for a reason. And I would not be where I'm at today. I would not have started the podcast had I not come to law school. So, you know, everything happened for a reason. It worked out. And I going back to the confidence and the keeping promises to yourself, like, and listening to your intuition, your gut, my gut, my intuition was the one telling me I need to start this podcast, that this is going to be an amazing resource for people. And with all that, I'm so happy that we were able to have this conversation and share it because I think it's, it's a conversation that like we, we both started our journey on social media as creating the content that we wish we would have seen when we were making those decisions. So I think, I hope, I don't think, I hope, and I know that us having these conversations and us putting ourselves out there in our respective platforms will be that for someone else. The younger versions of ourselves that are coming behind us, like we'll see that in us. And I think that's really, really special. So thank you so much for joining me. Where can everyone find you? Um, Again, say your handles. Yeah. So for the Redhead Academic, I'm on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. It's just at the Redhead Academic. And you can also check out Accepted Consulting at acceptedconsulting.com as well as on Instagram. Wasn't that quote at the end just incredible? I've never heard it that way before until talking to her. And if you listen to my intentions episode at the beginning of the year, you know that I kind of use that as one of my lessons that I've learned and one of my 
you know, intentions for 2022, just confidence comes from keeping promises to yourself. I absolutely love that. And yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I'm so, so grateful that I get to share these conversations with you guys and definitely go give Kaylin a follow on YouTube, on Instagram, on TikTok. I love her TikToks. I save all of her audios for myself to make TikToks eventually. Um, and I never get to them, but when I do, I'm very excited because she has really great audio. So definitely go check her out on TikTok. And if you like this episode, please leave a rating and review. Don't forget to screenshot as you listen and tag us so we know you listened and loved the episode and it's the best way to grow the show. And yeah, share it with a friend, someone who's in academia or someone who's an equestrian or someone who wants to transfer out of community college or just honestly for anybody. This episode can really be for absolutely anyone because it's just that amazing and there's so many good nuggets of wisdom here and I am so excited that you guys get to meet Kaylin. I hope you guys love this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll talk to you guys next week.